You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, The Evolution of Thinking Machines, with speakers Danny Hillis and Alexis Madrigal. Hillis is an inventor, scientist, author, and engineer. He is co-founder of Applied Minds, a research and development company that creates a range of new products and services in software, entertainment, electronics, biotechnology, and mechanical design. Hillis is also a professor of engineering and medicine at University of Southern California. He holds over 200 U.S. patents and designed a 10,000-year mechanical clock that's being built inside a mountain in western Texas. Madrigal is the Silicon Valley Bureau Chief for Fusion, where he hosts and produces a television show about the future. He is a tech critic for NPR's Fresh Air, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and a former staff writer at Wired. He is a visiting scholar at the University of California at Berkeley's Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. In many ways, artificial intelligence has become the norm. From autopilot on airplanes to language translation, Hillis says we've come to accept once novel concepts as just something thinking machines do. What we have ultimately learned, he says, is that human thinking is just one way of thinking. So how far will artificial intelligence go? Here are Danny Hillis and Alexis Madrigal. Today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, robots are everywhere. They're organizing your email, they're driving cars, they're trading stocks. And somehow, almost without us noticing, it's like we've become the center of an ecosystem of different intelligences. Sometimes I, I think about it as, you know, the, you have your microbiome, all these bacteria in your gut that are sort of helping you digest food. Well, I feel like now we have this sort of microbiome that's kind of out there, these little intelligences that are helping you digest information uh, about the world. I think uh, the least we can say about it is that we're in very interesting times when it comes uh, to robots, and I think we have the perfect person here with me, Danny Hillis, to help guide us through uh, some of these changes and things that we may see in the future. I think when people think about uh, big technology figures, they might uh, go to like uh, Bill Gates or Elon Musk or you know, people who've built these uh, large companies but I think the person that we have here is a true inventor's inventor, uh, and he's one of the most interesting thinkers about technology in the world. Um, just tell you a little bit more about him. He trained at MIT with two people, uh, Claude Shannon and Marvin Minsky, who are kind of giants in the field of computing. Shannon for developing information theory, and Minsky for founding the Artificial Intelligence Lab uh, at MIT. Um, after that, Danny himself became famous for developing some of the key concepts uh, for supercomputing, uh, as well as kind of uh, a very important disk storage technique that allows lots of the things that go on today uh, to occur. And he's now a, a principal at Applied Minds, uh, which is a company that apparently works on everything for a lot of big companies. Uh, and what they do is they come up with new products, they invent stuff. Um, but I want to start, because you have decades of experience uh, in artificial intelligence, can you give us sort of a pocket personal history of the kind of different eras of, of artificial intelligence that you've seen? So I guess the people in the field think of it in terms of maybe cybernetics, classical AI, neural networks, and big data uh -huh. would be how they would sort of classify 
But the big thing that has, has changed, maybe just stepping back a, a, a zillion miles, is that we've changed really what we think of as thinking. Mm -hmm. So it, it used to be that any behavior a machine did that sort of exhibited any kind of intelligence, um, we sort of gave it credit for thinking a little bit. So if you look at the very early artificial intelligence stuff, it, it was things that we wouldn't really even think of now as being intelligent, like, uh, for instance, um, an automatic uh, pilot on an airplane that uh -huh. steers the pilot. Uh -huh. you know, and that was cybernetics was sort of that idea, that you could have feedback, and if it had an error, it could move in this direction. If it had an error in the other direction, it could move in the other direction, and that was a big deal. And in fact, the word cybernetics comes from steer, I guess, helmsman. Right. Um, so, so that was something that people couldn't imagine you could get a machine to do. But then once you got a machine to do it, we didn't think of it as thinking. We just thought of it as something that machines do. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the history of AI is a history of series of things like that. So, so the next stage was symbol processing. Like that would be words and understanding of, of That's human right. symbols. Yeah, so when I showed up at, at the artificial intelligence lab, that was the big thing. And you would walk around and we had, uh, Shank was working on kids understanding children's stories. And, um, and there was Terry Winograd looking at piles of blocks of, uh, you know, a lot of times we did things that children did trying to you know, understand how to, for instance, make an arch out of blocks and turn that abstract idea into a symbol. And, and in fact, it was, it was a little bit funny walking around the lab because you'd see people playing with blocks and reading children's <laughs> stories and things like that. And this was a, a lab at the time, one of the, the first big projects of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. DARPA, a, if you haven't yeah, heard of it. It was, it was a, little, a little bit embarrassing to DARPA to bring by the general and show these professors playing with blocks and reading children's <laughs> stories, but playing tic-tac-toe, that kind right, of thing. Right. But the basic idea there was that you could get a machine to manipulate a symbol, which now is, I mean, when you do a Google search, that's all that's happening. And of course, we just think of that as something machines do. But then that seemed to require thinking that you could somehow understand a sentence enough to know that this sentence mm -hmm. was talking about that. Or um, speech recognition was another one that, you know, that was artificial intelligence. And there was discussion about uh, could computers ever do it? I remember there was serious discussion by the philosophers when I arrived. So you'd just gotten, computers were pretty good at playing checkers. Mm -hmm. And there were people like Joel Weizenbaum who were talking about how they would never play chess because, and they had all these sort of very strong philosophical arguments based on Husserl or, you know, <laughs> that, you know, why the concepts were just too complicated for machines to do. But then of course, when machines started playing chess, people didn't go back and rewrite the philosophy books. They just, sort of redefine that as not thinking, oh, the machines are doing something else. Do you else. think the reason that we're able to do that is because the machines aren't playing chess in the way that a human plays chess? Um, well, and it's fair, they, they don't, but sometimes they do. I mean, let's say that, would it really make that much difference to you if I said, okay, actually there's this machine over here that does play in exactly the same way that a human does? And people have made machines that play more like human, and they play pretty good. Yeah. Um, but 
I think one of the things we have learned is that human thinking is just a way of thinking. Yeah. And sometimes it's actually we prefer, it's more useful to us to have other things around that think in a different way than we do that kind of complement our thinking. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think part of what's happened is sort of the general concept of sort of intelligence that we'd have one singular artificial intelligence that would do everything it seems to have kind of broken apart into a, a lot of multiple intelligences. Yeah, and I think, in fact, what we probably learned the most about in artificial intelligence is what thinking is. And so I think there was an idea that thinking was some magic thing like life. And in fact, I think biology is going through this transition right now, but so that either you thought or you didn't think. And science fiction in those days was a little bit, you know, you, if you just put enough computers in one room and put the right special sauce on it, then one day, yeah, one day it would uh, wake up and suddenly start thinking. And I think as, as we started trying to build machines that think, we started realizing that there's very different kinds of things that go on in the human mind. And so an awful lot of what goes on is um, below the level of consciousness. So we tended to think of thinking as the th thinking that was hard for us, like mm -hmm. playing chess. Mm -hmm. Because that's where we really had to struggle with doing, lots doing of a calculus problem. Right. Yeah. And so if you look at early AI, a lot of it was working on those things. It was how, how to get a computer to solve a calculus problem, how to play a game of chess, how to you know, solve a puzzle or something like that. Um, but the more we looked at it, the harder problems were actually much more how do you recognize a face? Mm -hmm. um, how do you um, how do you have a, do a piece of common sense reasoning that you know that if I if I dump out if I open the cap and turn the bottle over the water will run out. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of thinking, which you do so well that it doesn't seem to have any effort, is actually most of the thinking you do. Right. And so a lot of AI was discovering, so noticing where we were actually doing thinking. Mm -hmm. And noticing that, well, it's just not automatic going from the meaning of the words to the meaning of the sentence, for instance. And I, I think that, for instance, there was a huge revolution in linguistics that was caused when people started trying to get computers to do the theories of what linguists used to think people did when like they Tom understood language. Yeah, when they realized that that didn't make any sense. People don't do that. It doesn't explain how people understand it because, in fact, if you listen to people really talk, they don't speak grammatically at all, and yet they get meaning out of the sentences. So how do computers do that? Uh, how do people do that? That's really what you have to do to understand language. Well, maybe we could explain that to people. How does something like Google Translate work? So, okay, so that... You guys, are, that, you guys are familiar with Google Translate. You put yep. in a sentence in English, it comes out in French, vice versa, or it comes out in Swahili, or there's actually lots of different languages. Google doesn't necessarily care what the language is. Well, in fact, you can take a problem like that and, and sort of describe the different stages of AI by looking at how people try to approach it. So there was the kind of naive first pass in the symbolic stage where people said, oh, well, we'll just have a big dictionary and we'll have a set of grammar transformation rules between language and we'll you know, look everything up in the dictionary, find the equivalent words, find the equivalent grammar transformations, and do a translation. It was all sort of rules-based. Mm -hmm. rules and, and then you know, they would put in 
you know, the, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak and they'd get, you know, the vodka strong but the potatoes are rotten or something. And, <laughs> and, you know, just because of puns in various language and so on. And, and um, the, uh, so that just didn't, it bombed completely. Yeah. Um, and then there was another stage where people tried to do it with no theory of what was going on the kind of training neural networks to kind of do pattern recognition. And that bomb, because actually at the time, they didn't have nearly large enough corpuses. And, and they didn't have enough words. To they didn't have enough words. That, that's yeah. right. And they didn't have enough examples, things like that. And so you had to go and compile. And then the, in the current stage, what people do, and I'm pretty sure this is how Google, it used to be how Google Translate works. I mean, Google's constantly evolving, so maybe today it's something different. But the way that, the best way to translate language is you use lots and lots of examples where you have parallel text. And, and you say, well, in this parallel text, when they said this sentence, it got translated to this sentence. And so, you know, people rarely say completely new utterances, at least at the phrase level. Yeah. And so if you have a phrase that you know how it got translated, then you know, with some little tweaks, I mean, you might have to switch the noun or something like that. You can recognize patterns in one language. If you have just very, very large numbers of examples, you can say, hey, what's, what's the closest example I have of this? And how is it translated? Language. You know, it's interesting because I, I think as artificial intelligence has sort of gone into various different domains, it's not as if the people have all left that realm. You know, there's a, it's a fascinating um, story by Gary Kasparov, you know, chess champion in the New York Review of Books, um, where he's talking about what's basically happened to chess after computers. After computers became, you know, uh, they're like a fairly decent computer now is like better than uh, most grandmasters, but it didn't actually make chess go away as a human game. Um, how do you see humans responding when computers become masters of their domain, which is something that a lot of us, even in this room, are. are so I think that's one thing I think there's been a huge shift in, in the time that I've been in artificial intelligence or, or watching it, which is people used to be extremely threatened by the idea of artificial intelligence. It was scary, it was, you know, you're going to take away my job, you're, um, it's going to be some, you know, you're going to create super beings. Terminator, slave, right. slave humans, and so on. And, and, there, and that was the stage where I said there were you know, hordes of philosophers lined up to explain what, reassure people that it would never happen. And, um, and in fact, even at the time when Big Blue beat Kasparov, people were still rooting for Kasparov. Oh, yeah. That was absolutely. Um, but if you notice the more recent thing, which was when Watson won Jeopardy, people were actually rooting for Watson. <laughs> And so that's a very, it's a very big change. Which IBM very much appreciated. Well, yeah. and, and now IBM is talking about, it used to be verboten at IBM to talk about artificial intelligence and thinking machines and so on. And now, you know, I, you know that's part of IBM's corporate message because it resonates well with people. Yeah. And so what's happened, I think, is people now have enough experience with machines that have a lot of intelligence in them. They have their cell phone, they have their personal computers, they have the, the various applications that they access on the network. 
And they realized that intelligence machines actually kind of helping their lives, not threatening their lives. Mm -hmm. And so I think they feel very differently about it. There's also another effect, which is when machines are really dumb, when this, you're, you're used to thinking of machines as being things like can openers and automobile engines, and then being compared to a machine is kind of insulting. To say mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. um, but I'm no can opener. Yeah, yeah. yeah but mm -hmm. when when machines are, you know, search engines and um, kind of the app, you know, your your cell phone. So being compared to a machine is less insulting, and you can kind of see, well, it has, it, it it's not exactly like you, but it has things that complement you and things that extend you. Do you think people want to know when they're being replaced? And I'll give you a, a, like a tiny example in cars. We're going to get into autonomous driving, self-driving cars in a second. Um, but you know, Nissan and, and Toyota and different companies, as you, the newest cars, when you steer into a turn, if you over or understeer, the computer goes, no, that's not actually how you should be steering, and corrects your, your entry into the turn without telling you anything. You just think you're a great driver. Um, so do you think people would rather just sort of be like, I am a great driver, and like just sort of not know that there's all these low-level robots doing the work for them? So again, I think it's, it's like your chess analogy. There's going to be a set of people who want you know, to be race car drivers and really have control over it and you know, have the manual transmission. And, and you know, that will, I think, always exist. But most people, when they're trying to get from A to B, are not doing it for the driving experience. And, mm -hmm. and so they're very happy to have the automatic transmission do the shifting for them, the brakes, you know, feather the brakes for them, and so on. So it won't go away that people will want to do it directly. Yeah. Um, but I think in most circumstances, uh, actually, you know, the current generation would just rather have the car drive them there. Yeah. Um, before we get fully into, into cars, I kind of want to get at your motivations for wanting to build thinking machines. And, um, there was a quote that uh, Stephen Levy uh, had from you in 2005, that you wanted to build a computer that would be proud of you. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I, do you still want to do that? Yeah, that was, I, I, I would like to do that. But of course, that's, a, um, that's an age-old ambition, right? Yeah. To, to build something. I mean, I mean I, maybe I've gotten some of that out of my system by having kids now. Right? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> And, um, but yeah, you go back there, you know, like the, the rabbi of Prague, you know, building the golem or, yeah. you know, the bacon building the, the thinking head. And so it's been a dream, you know, for a long time to sort of build a machine that would somehow, um, And you just see yourself as you part and, of that lineage or do you yeah, have specific think, motivations No, I, for I would why? say it's, it's the same lineage because of course it's, it's the most complicated, well, I mean, I, there's two amazingly complicated things in the world. One is life right. and the other is thinking. And both of those are so complicated that you know, the idea of building them and tinkering with them, they're, you know, they're the holy grails of if, you're, if you have this sort of, I guess, engineering mentality of wanting to make, you know, make things, you know, those are the ultimate things to make. Um, and of course, making them involves trying to understand them better. And in both of the, I mean, life, we're just getting to the making it stage. Right. Um, and I think um, you know, we're just at the beginning of the making the, the thinking machines. 
stage. I just love that, unlike a lot of technologies, you just say, well, we just want to make the world a better place. We just want to make your life more convenient and more useful. I like that you actually admit that there's kind of a, like almost a spiritual quest at the center of, of wanting to yeah, build Yeah, of course, of course we believe or convince ourselves that we'll make a better place and, 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 and so on. But I think that there is, there's an adventure to it. There's an excitement to it of, um, kind of getting your head around the ultimate complexity. And, yeah. So um, let's, go, let's go to self-driving cars now. How many people have, have heard about self-driving car experiments in here? Okay, so everybody, okay. Um, what do you tell us, you know, I think the thing that it was sort of shocking for me as I started writing more and more about it is that, you know, if you'd asked someone in 2003, you know, is there gonna be a self-driving car driving around the streets of Mountain View, California in, in 2014? I don't think anybody would have thought that was actually possible. So what were the sort of things, and here you're working on this with, yeah, the, um, the, actively. I've, so what are the sort of things that happened between now and then to make it seem not just possible, but maybe inevitable? So an awful lot of what's happened in artificial intelligence has just been that computers have gotten faster. <laughs> and we have been able to actually implement the ideas that we've had for a long time. And so there are some new ideas, but an awful lot of it is really, for instance, in machine vision. Um, you know, we can now do the things that were really pretty much understood how to do in the 60s and 70s. But it used to be that one picture you know, took a day to calculate. And now you can calculate 60 frames a second on multiple cameras on the vehicle. And a, and a laser rangefinder on top. Well, so that's, yeah. that is another thing, is that the DARPA challenge focused a lot of people on the problem. This was in like 2004. Right. So, so DARPA basically made a prize for a self-driving car. And um, that's right. And, and lots of people tried. And then people discovered various ways to kind of cheat. And one of the, one of the big ways to cheat was to actually use a laser rangefinder, which gave you three-dimensional information directly rather than having to figure out from the pictures. Which you've ever seen one there, when you see a self-driving car, there tends to be this triangular structure on top. It kind of looks like the tripod at the back of the room with the camera on it. And it's actually laser spinning around like this, so it can hit all the points in the room. And what comes back to the, to the machine is this sort of point cloud, so it can actually see with depth everywhere everyone is in this room and kind of create three-dimensional models kind of on, on the fly almost. But that's just, that's just a temporary quirk of technology. Yeah. And in fact, I suspect, I mean, already we're building self-driving cars that don't use those. And my guess is that... And what does it take what, to go beyond that? Is it better well, cameras? Well, again, just with more computation, you can do it with cameras. So that was a little cheat to use slightly <laughs> slower computers, in effect, by using a better sensor. Um, but... So I, you, and I think you'll see it happen gradually. And in some sense, as, as you pointed out, most of your cars are probably already self-driving to a certain extent. So when you press on the brake, you're not really, you know, there's not really something connected to that. You know, right, not, it right. used to be a tube. It's not a lever. Right. Yeah, there used yeah. to be a lever connected to something that pressed on the brake. Now you're signaling a computer and telling it you want to stop, and the computer is, <laughs> calculating what's the best thing to do to get you to stop. And, and actually, more and more, and it's, more and more of your car is getting to do that. And your steering wheel will become you know, the way that you tell the computer that you want to go down that street. Um, and the computer will take care of the details of it. 
And so, and then pretty soon you won't use the steering wheel. You'll just tell it you want to go down that street or you'll just tell it where you want to end up. And so there'll be stages of it. So uh, one of the other big cheats in self-driving cars are the, they go pre-map everything. So, you know, Google in particular has been making these uh, super high resolution maps that have a lot of data already put in so that the computer doesn't have to calculate it. So it knows where to look for, uh, for the street lights. It knows uh, how wide each lane is and what the center is, which allows it to calculate the paths more easily that it's going to take. Do you think, and, and so what that means essentially is that only places that Google is willing to go map in this very expensive way Google self-driving cars will only be able to go to those places, which seems like it may have some, some implications. Do you think that that's going to stick around, or is there going to be, in the future, we won't need to do that mapping process? First of all, yeah, that, that, that mapping is something that makes it easier, but um, we already build on applied minds self-driving cars that don't use maps, that look around. Um, and so I'd say, I think it's known how to do that. They're, they're doing that because it's easier and, and you can make safer cars and so on by taking advantage of every piece of information you have. So people, the machines will use it when they have the information and they'll do fine when they don't have the information. But I think one thing people don't quite, haven't quite processed yet is how much better self-driving cars will drive than people. And uh, we still have tens of thousands of people you know, die every year because, I mean, if, imagine if I introduced the car today mm -hmm. and, and I said, hey, I've got this great technology, you're going to love it, you know, we're going we're gonna to strap, we're going to put you in a box with a tank of gasoline and, <laughs> and create a series of tiny explosions. And, right, yeah. create, a, yeah, create a series of <laughs> tiny explosions that are going to propel you forward. But not only that, but we're going to put you on this, on this road, this piece of asphalt with other people. You're going to drive 60 miles an hour. You're going to control your tank of gasoline as you whirl by them. But don't worry. We're going to pin a yellow line down the middle <laughs> so that the people coming this way aren't going to bump into you. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, right. And, and it's going to kill 30,000 people a year. Yeah, you know? yeah right. don't worry about that. Right. In well, the US and that's, alone. And that's, right. and that's, that's from the true. accidents, right? Yeah. Right. And, and we, had, we do these ridiculous things of, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I spend a lot of time in traffic sitting there and waiting on, on a road that, if you looked at it from a satellite, you'd see the road is mostly empty because there's mostly gaps between the cars for safety and things like that. And we're all sitting there waiting because somebody's, you know, waiting for red light. Well, you know, the red light is just this convention so that humans are taking, to make humans take turns. <laughs> now, if you had self-driving cars, that communicated they would just drive right through the intersection and not bump into each other. And there's plenty of room in the intersection because there's plenty of room on the road. So there's, they would be fundamentally safer, they would get rid of the traffic problems in, in their cities. Now, I think that will be the thing that will drive them, is they'll be cheaper than adding road capacity. Um, they'll be much more, uh, we, we could eliminate parking. There's no reason to have parking spaces if you, know, you could just call your car, your car could be doing something else. And so it could be, it could be more like... <laughs> Well, people, you know, if you want to look up uh, some visions that people have really gamed out for this future in which your car will just sort of be roving or the service that you purchase from a car company, uh, look up like whistle cars. There's a, a guy who's like really gone into absurd detail about all the different land use changes that this could cause, uh, how it could change traffic conditions. I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
there are people out there, particularly in Silicon Valley and California generally, I think, that are, are putting tremendous thought into the implications of, of these things um, because it now is starting to feel like a near-term thing. It's like, do you think people will be used to driving, being driven by computers by, say, 2024? Well, I think, again, I think it will be not a sudden transition. Mm -hmm. but I think they'll get more and more used to it. So there won't be a day where you say everybody's used to this. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that you know, you'll all have the experience of doing that within the next decade. Yeah. Being driven by driven places by computers. In fact, you already have. If you've, I mean, if you've gone to a major airport and gotten, you know, a computer shuttle between two right. places. You, right, right, right. So, but you'll, what will happen is you'll just there'll be more and more situations in which that kind of thing happens, and you'll never probably notice a transition. You just after a while notice that more and more of the driving is done by computers, and and you know maybe you know once you get. Uh, I, I mean, I still want my rocket car, though. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, you can imagine other modes of transportation that aren't even driving that computers could do. Like, they could... Like flying. Well, they could throw oh. you and catch you, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go first. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's turn it, before we go to Q&A, I want to get to some of your work. You know, you said life and, and thinking are kind of the two most complicated... But, but I realize I didn't yeah. answer your, your very first question because oh, I was sure. giving yeah, yeah, the yeah, too yeah, long-winded yeah. version of it. But there is a really interesting thing in the development of artificial intelligence, yeah. which is there were, for many years, there were kind of two schools of thought in artificial intelligence. There were the symbol processors um, who did things like they wrote very complicated computer programs that did things. And there were the neural network people who trained computers to do things without really understanding how the neural networks did it. But they gave them examples and sort of taught the computer and learned. Kind of a black box. Right. And there was always arguments of which way intelligence works. And I think, like many of these arguments, what we finally figured out is that intelligence works both ways. If you look at how the brain works, there are really two very different kinds of thinking that go on. In fact, if you've read Danny Kahneman's book, Think mm -hmm. Fast, Think Slow, mm -hmm. it's just from the point of a psychologist, this observation, that there are really two thinking processes. One of them we do completely subconsciously, and it's probably where we do most of our thinking, which is not logical thinking at all. It's really a trained kind of example thinking. We're making really um, dumb, in some sense, heuristics like if you see money lying around, be wary and don't trust people. <laughs> and there are cases in which that makes sense, and there are cases that doesn't make sense. And Danny's book is full of examples where, you know, mm -hmm. we do things like that that don't make sense. Um, and so there's a lot of your brain is just doing stuff like that. And then there's another part of your brain that's more like a chess player that is more trying to think things out and imagine a perfect world and plan things and make logical deductions and so on. That's kind of the tip of the iceberg. And the big lesson I think that artificial intelligence learned is that's the easy part. That logical, that part that's the voice in our head that we're so proud of as, as thinking, that's really not much of what thinking is. And in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if there are people that sort of don't have that and they would get along okay in the world. I mean, they wouldn't, 
you know, they wouldn't be quite right, but they would get along. Whereas if you didn't have the... Or if you could process visual input... If, 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 yeah, you, could, you couldn't get along at all. And, and so that appreciation is maybe one of the big new things that's happened in, in artificial intelligence. So, for instance, if you look at how Watson worked, um, Watson kind of, its architecture was like that. It had um, a lot of computer programs that, you know, did things to play Jeopardy, um, most of which didn't work. Well, actually, none of which worked very well. But then it had a kind of executive thing on top of it that you know, weighed the inputs of all these weak things and, mm -hmm. and came up with an answer. I think uh, one of the most fascinating things that's come out of this for like, thinking about human brains is that cognitive scientists have really gone to work informed by a lot of the stuff coming out of artificial intelligence and have started to really see like, the way that our eyes work as these kind of fascinating computing machines where we think of it as sort of like input coming in and we just sort of perceive it purely, the world, the, the external world. But really what's happening is that we have these other functions of the brain that are sending predictions down into our eyes so that our eyes know what to expect. When I look at a face, I don't just see like two circles and like a, a line. Instead, I see like eyes and a mouth. And they found that when they actually look at the architecture of those cells, that there's as many connections going down from these other conceptual parts of the brain down to the, the parts that are dealing with the input of the stimulus as there are going back the other way. And so the, the upshot of that is that what we think of as perception and what we think of um, as, as our, our predictions about the world are, are kind of the same thing. We can't in separate fact, those. In fact, vision is really kind of controlled hallucination. Right, yeah, that's so a great you're, way. So you're, you're hallucinating how you think the world is and you're projecting that image over the world and occasionally the world gets out of skew with that and you adjust your hallucination. But you're really looking at your hallucination so you don't see your blind spot, for example, which is you, know, you really have a big hole in the picture and you don't yep. see that at yep. all. And, and I think that happens, at, that metaphor actually happens at many levels. So our perception of reality in general, although it seems very, very concrete to us, we're actually hallucinating the way that we think things are. I mean, some, even something as simple and as basic as color perception. Mm -hmm. you know, we think, well, okay, that's, that's absolutely hardwired. But many, there are many cultures, for instance, that don't have a word for blue. And if you ask somebody from one of those cultures to pick out the different, the chip that's of a different color, and you put a bunch of green chips and you know, some blue chips, in a culture that has a word for blue, people will immediately pick out the blue chip and say that's different than the green chip. In a culture that doesn't have a word for blue, they won't perform on that task. And you'd think, well, that's just inherent in the chips. It's not, it's not in your construction, but actually even the color is kind of an hallucination. In our... That's fascinating. Before we, so quickly we're going to go to questions, so get, get, them, get them ready. But I want to hear just a little bit um, about the work that you've been doing uh, with proteomics, which is sort of measuring the proteins that are in um, your cells, and, and why, what the connection is between that work and artificial intelligence. Well, actually, I, we touched on it before because life is the other right. you know, wonderfully complex machine. And so that I got interested in. In fact, I'll be talking about it later in the week with David Agus, who's the 
the physician that got me interested in this. But if you look at the human body, it's this incredibly complex communication system between your cells. And so it is a kind of intelligence that keeps you alive. And sickness is somehow that intelligence failed to solve a problem. So mostly when we deal with, uh, mostly what physicians deal with is bodies that have lost some, they've lost control of, of some, some, part, of that some part of that machinery, that's right. Now, what would be really nice is if you could see that a body was starting to fight that battle before you got sick. So it would be really great if medicine was about treating people right before they got sick to prevent them from getting sick instead of treating sick people. So I'm not talking about just keeping you generally healthy because things will go wrong. Uh, what I'm talking about is noticing that you know, you're about to get colon cancer and going in there and cutting it out before you get it. You know, that's, so like more predictive that, medicine rather well, than preventative. Pre pre preemptive, I think, preemptive. is a good. Preemptive. And so to do that, you need to know what's going on inside your body because your body is very good at masking anything that's going wrong. And so the signaling system inside your body is proteins. And there are certainly tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of proteins going around that control what your body does, including um, your, uh, your microbiome, the proteins of your microbiome. And there's never been an, really a reliable way of measuring those. And so one of the things that, that uh, we've developed is a way of going and taking a drop of blood and looking at all those signals in your body and seeing what your, what your body is doing. And then we're beginning to be able to understand them, interpret them, and that's the part that's kind of like artificial intelligence, make some sense of them, and so that, for instance, to take that example, I'm pretty sure now I can, from a drop of blood, tell you if you're about to get colon cancer. Well, that's a really useful thing because if I can do that, I can send you in and get a colonoscopy and stop it. So, Do you find would... yourself pricking your finger and putting it in <laughs> into your machine every day or what? Well, I definitely think we're gonna to move to a world where we'll do that. And so I, I think we will move to a world where you will probably, you probably won't even go to the doctor's office. You'll probably just do like what a diabetic does, a little prick once a month, and you might mail it in or put it into a machine or something like that. And something will notice that, hey, you really ought to. And sometimes it'll be small interventions. You know, you, you need to eat a little bit more of this or um, you know, you're not getting enough sleep or something like that, or you should uh, warm up the left side of, with a heating pad. There may be very small interventions that, if done early, can sort of steer things in the right direction, or it may signal to you that larger interventions like surgeries or you know, uh, pharmaceuticals, things like that. But if you get those much earlier, you can, you can do more with less. What, what's the path from here where you have this idea about it and the world where people are, are using this stuff all the time? Well, I, I mean, there's lots of stages in the path for developing these things. And, and so in, innovation is a kind of a pyramid in a sense. If you take something like, let's say the light bulb, it's the classical thing. Well, so we all know the light bulb was invented by Thomas Edison. Um, but actually, what you don't know is before that, there were 10 
people who made glass envelopes with, with, a, filament inside. with a filament inside them, and some of them worked better than Thomas Edison and so on. But he was the one that put it together in a system that was commercially successful and got it out into the world. So, you know, 10 people basically developed the technology got to work. Now, before that, there were actually 100 people who sort of had the idea of putting <laughs> a filament in a bulb and tried it out. And so there were 100 people who kind of tried to get that work, sort of got it work, and so on, of, of which 10 of them actually got it to work, of which one of them made it commercially successful. And then beyond that, there were a whole lot of people who kind of dreamed of the possibility. And, and so what happens with all of these is that it, it goes through a stage of, you know, there's an exploratory stage. If you look, if you go down where hundreds of people were working on it, all the light bulbs looked very, very different, and you know, it was before it was really understood how to do it, and so on. So what I'm describing to you now in, in the uh, proteomics is kind of in the hundreds of light bulb stage. It's you know, many different ideas about how to do this, but once people start seeing the possibility, then it's going to get refined, and a few yeah. people will start getting it to work, and then you know you'll have the, you know the Edison or the Steve Jobs of it who will you know make the commercial version of it that will, you know, become successful. And do you around around proteomics or around other things like what are the things that you think will be surprised by over the next ten years, where something goes from this stage? where there's a lot of possibility but no products and it sort of pops out like, you know, this glass paradigm here of... Uh, well, so so it's coffee. an interesting question. Were you surprised by that? Um, I, think I, I think I was only because um, there's a guy named Bill Buxton at Microsoft who has this whole kind of museum of failed gadgets and some successful ones as well. And the, the, the idea that we would do this, that we would have this, was, had been tried and failed many times. And so it was... Okay, so that's, that's the interesting thing. So, so the, it wasn't the idea that surprised you because people had been talking about right. that idea for years and years. It was... It was that, oh, well, it finally worked. Right. <laughs> and so that, that is in the nature of technology. And it's, it kind of comes from this thing I was saying with the light bulb. Is that what, you know, that when it, those had been tried and failed many times, those were the hundred right. attempts at it, the Newton, the, right. you know, the... Various palm piloty things. Right, and exactly. And, and so there's a, and that is a process, so there's a, there's a process of, first of all, there's the going to the possibility, people realize the possibility. So, you know, when Alan Kay wrote about Dynabooks, you know, that was this. Yeah. And so some, once the possibility has been realized, like, the self-driving car or something like that, which you know, then usually sits there for a while until the, tech, the pieces of the technology are available to enable it. You know, in this case, it was a battery technology, it was display mm -hmm. tech, touch-sensitive displays, right. it was you know, a whole bunch of pieces. And then as those become available, or in self-driving cars, it was computing power and laser rangefinders and things like that. Once the pieces finally are there. Then people start assembling them. And of course, they start assembling before they're quite well. So you see lots of failures, yeah. where they have nine out of 10 of the pieces mm -hmm. altogether. So you see a stage of lots of sort of almost, or maybe they're only useful in a mm -hmm. special thing. And then when the complete set of pieces gets out, then it becomes kind of 
a marketing business problem who can produce them, who can put it into an appealing enough package that you know, everybody wants to buy one. And there's a very different, and that's, that's when it clicks. So that's when in some sense it gets out into the world when it goes through that last hurdle. But it's almost fundamental that it goes through that stage of lots and lots of failures first. And do you see, what do you see uh, out there that things are on the cusp of that transition? So, well, I actually do think in, in medicine that's true. So I, I do think that this idea of a revolution in medical diagnosis that is based on um, looking at the proteins in your blood, and even the idea of I, somehow, the idea that your general care physician should diagnose you, that's a sort of old-fashioned idea. So it's, because really what do they do? They send it off to a lab test and they, you know, the lab testing company tells them what to say, fundamentally. I mean, that's, I mean and that's, yeah. that's, not, that's not the only thing that's going on. Um, I mean, they have a lot of general skills of noticing other things that aren't in the blood test. Um, but, you know, we're, that, that's a much more complicated topic. So let me, let me take back that, that snide <laughs> comment. Because um, in the crowd, he apologizes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think we will see a revolution in medicine because we, we have a broken system right now that we can't afford and doesn't work very well. So I think people will see huge technological changes in how we diagnose, treat, distribute in, in I mean, medicine. Medicine it'll has be, been be big, interesting because it seems one. like in most things you add technology and prices come down and the consumer proposition gets better. It seems like in medicine basically the opposite has happened so far. Uh, so what's, what's going to... Well, but I think the thing I described to you really is a paradigm shift because if we could start treating people, if we put more of the emphasis on early diagnosis, and I think this technology lets us do that, then actually the cost does come down because it's treating people who are really sick that's expensive. And nobody wants to be really sick. So it's, this is a case where there's an alignment of what the consumers want and what the insurance companies want. Mm -hmm. So both, the both you and your insurance company don't want you to get colon cancer. So that's, and so I think there's a lot of forces in that direction that will make those kinds of things happen. So I think we'll have, see huge um, changes in that. Uh, that'll, that'll, the other thing I think we'll see that I think will surprise people is um, implantable extensions of your um, capabilities. Yourself, your capabilities, yeah. And I think it's something, it's an idea. Is this like a calculator in the brain? That probably makes people queasy a little bit right now, but the next generation, it won't make queasy at all. The next generation, if you give them the chance to, you know, do their Google search just by thinking it, um, they're going to want that thing implanted in there. Or, you know, to tweet without you know, without moving their fingers. And so I think we will see a lot of that happening. Why don't we go to questions? We've got a lot here. Hi. Um, can you give a really simple explanation of how an algorithm leads a computer to what we would call thought? Well, first of all, I can't because it's not a simple process. There's a lot that goes on in what we would call thought. Um, so I don't believe that you're doing a single thing when you, when you think. You probably have lots of equivalents of algorithms or, and heuristics, and namely algorithms that 
work weekly. So when you make a judgment, when you, you know, see something and it makes you happy, it's probably many, many thousands of different processes in there, in your brain, some of which would make sense to you if you explain them, like association with you know, previous things that made you happy, some of which would really not make any sense if you ex explain them. And that complicated thing gets summarized in your brain as a thought. But the thought is in some sense just your brain's commentary on what's going on. So it's, it's kind of the headline of what went on. And so what you perceive as the thought is just the headline of a very, very complicated process of actually probably contradictory things that were going on in your brain. And so computers to do that are going to have to have lots of different things going on at once. And if you look at a computer like Watson, when it comes up with a Jeopardy answer, it's not that it has a single algorithm that gets you to that answer. It has lots of different things that it's doing, some of which are really stupid, like word association. You know, this word just is associated a lot with that word. So it's a dumb thing, it doesn't really work that much, but if those two words are more likely to be associated, it will be more likely to come up in the Jeopardy answer for both the human and for the computer. And so what somehow the sum of all of these processes produces an answer, which is your thought or your answer to the question. Um, and that, that's really what thinking is. Thinking is the sum of all of that summarized in the thought. Thank you. I, I want to um, turn to the preemptive uh, medicine concept. And I think that uh, there was a question about the path forward, which is very, very, very important when you think about this, uh, because I think understanding the natural history of what is going on in your body over time is going to be critical uh, so that we do no harm. And I want to give just a, a 25 word example, um, it's not proteomics, but at any given time there are probably 10 million women who um, have been exposed to the HPV virus, which we right. know is the cause of right. invasive cervical cancer. Right. Over a 15 year period there will be about 1,100 cases. Of those 9 million plus cases that don't happen, more than 95% of them don't happen because the body sheds the virus. You don't have to do anything. And if you don't understand that and you start intervening with those 10 million women and turning them into patients and profit centers, um, I think that uh, the promise that you're describing, which is very, very exciting, will not be realized. Yep. And, and by the way, that's a general phenomenon with the, with the body. The body is so good at creating health that many, many things can be wrong in the body and yet it still manages to create health. But that doesn't mean that those things don't have an effect or don't, don't have an implication. So that's one of the things I think is really interesting is that the doctor is sort of forced to look at the when things get bad enough that the body isn't able to, to exhibit health. Whereas by looking into these internal variables of what's going on, we can actually see these kind of mask problems that, that the body is actually dealing with and taking care of. And, you know, the, the infections under control, the cancer, we all have, we all have cancer, but most, most of our cancers are under control by the body. 
And so understanding that, that history of sort of all the problems that we've dealt with and are dealing with, I think, is, a, is an important part. But of I think it. her question, just to follow up on it, it feels like how do you differentiate between cases where you would want to intervene because those people are eventually going to develop uh, uh, invasive cervical cancer and the much larger number of cases where that's not going to happen? Like, well, How do you make I, that distinction so you don't well, over-treat? So I guess what I'm saying is that the... We, we say that, so what, what you want to understand is have enough of a model of the body so that you can see when it's, things are starting to go wrong. Now that doesn't mean that things are starting to go wrong because you have an infection. If you have an infection, your body is successfully controlling it, then there's no reason to treat, there's no reason to do anything differently. But um, what, you can, uh, what you can say is, first of all, you're, you're, um, if, if you're watching that process of holding off that infection, then you can also see the transition for when you're failing to hold off, but actually intervene at that point and help the body along at that point. So in fact, all of our bodies have, I mean, that's, that's a specific example because we can measure it very well, but all of our bodies have hundreds or thousands of things like that going on in them all the time. And what happens is some combination of them get out of control, and it may manifest itself in some completely different way that we don't associate it with it. So um, that somebody has a viral infection may be stepping up their immune system and they may, for instance, uh, get an autoimmune disorder mm -hmm. because they've stepped up their immune mm -hmm. system to deal with a viral load of right. six of these hidden infections. And so you may think, well, they're healthy, they didn't, you know, they didn't progress, they didn't get the disease, but in fact, they're manifesting a different symptom. They're manifesting a symptom of having stepped up their immune system, which may show itself up in a completely different way. Okay, so um, I have a question about, I'm really interested in what you said about proteomics. Um, do you think it's possible in the near, in the near future where um, you can study how the body works and people who are fighting off infections and viruses by themselves, you can observe and perhaps create a model in the body of those and then use that to develop maybe drugs or possible ways of fighting infections in people who don't really have that capability but have that virus or something like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping it's true. And I don't know. We're, we're really just at the beginning of this right now. So we've just, within the last few years, been able for the first time to measure these variables. And so understanding how much they're actually going to tell us and then how we'll be able to use that information to do the kinds of things you're talking about. I, I, I don't think we really know. I'm optimistic, but it's, it's exploration. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for your insights. Shelley Porges from Washington, D.C. You posited that we think in two ways, the subconscious and the sort of conscious functional. Yesterday, David Brooks was in the same room and gave a really scintillating talk. His positing of two ways of thinking had to do with functional and what you might characterize as moral thinking. Do you ever see AI um, getting into the realm of moral thinking? I think that if we're going to have intelligent machines, then moral intelligence is certainly a critical part of intelligence. And we're certainly not going to trust machines with certain kinds of judgments unless they do have some kind of moral intelligence. Um, now, 
we're sort of in an interesting situation that you know we get to to a certain extent prescribe the moral intelligence but I guess we're in that situation when we teach our children too right? so, uh, and and probably like teaching our children we get to try to prescribe it but maybe um, one of the, one of the interesting things about artificial intelligence is you get to see your models reflected back at you. And so the, one of the things that usually becomes obvious is if you tell the machine to behave in a certain way and then it behaves that way and you realize, oh, that wasn't what I meant at all. <laughs> and my suspicion is that as we try to teach machines moral intelligence, moral principles, moral reasoning, and so on, that we'll learn a lot about morals. We'll learn, in fact, that our prescriptions for morals don't actually correspond that well to what we regard as moral behavior. And that, in fact, we've, we've sort of miscodified. I mean, I just, I, I just think of that in general principle because we've discovered that every other time we've tried to create some kind of intelligence. In machines, so I think we're actually going to learn about morality by trying to make our machines more moral. That seems like an excellent place to end it. Danny Hillis. That was Danny Hillis and Alexis Madrigal recorded live at the 2014 Aspen Ideas Festival. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. And while you're there, please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.